Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I am Deb Hunter, and this is your lucky day. Today, we are going to talk about not only medieval English history, we're going to blend in some Tudor, but you get to hear two Tennesseans talk about it. So it really is your lucky day. And I would like to introduce you to Christy Dean. Christy, how are you? Doing well. Thank you very much. Well, I'm so glad you're here and you're so very accomplished and you've done so much. If I met you at a cocktail party, how would you introduce yourself? Oh, goodness. That's a hard one. I have always had a love for medieval history, which is strange considering that I am from Tennessee and I've lived here most of my life. I would introduce myself as a PR person who fell in love with history and left the PR world in order to teach it and write about it. Let's talk about you and your love of history. Can you point out one certain event, one thing that drew you into studying history? Well, when I was a little girl, my mom was a teacher. And so I was often at the school when she was doing in-service and those types of days are terribly boring for a young kid. So I would go in the library and I read every single biography in the school library. And early on, I was fascinated, and I can't pinpoint why I was fascinated about these two, but Anne Boleyn and Richard III. And so that really made me interested in both the Yorks and the Tudors. And that fascination has only grown stronger throughout my life. So you started out in PR, and now you teach, is that right? Yes, I do. I teach, well, it's middle grades in the state, so it's eighth grade, 14-year-olds. And I teach U.S. history, but they learn quite a bit of medieval history as well because they like to hear me talk about it. So sometimes we talk, and especially when we're talking about why people came to the New World, I'm able to talk about it that way. So it works out. And then, you know, I've taught both U.S. and world history at local colleges, and I've enjoyed that. I like dealing with the adults as well because they know what they're studying and they come back and talk, and it's really interesting. And this year, I became a fellow in the Royal Historical Society, so that was I was so excited. I screamed when I opened the email. My husband, what? What was that? Congratulations to you on that. That's a big deal. Thank you. It really was to me. I feel honored to be a part of that organization. And you should be. Well, let's talk about Richard III and the Plantagenets, since that seems to be your jam. What work have you done on them? I've written two books, On the Trail of Richard III and On the Trail of the Yorks. 
Both of those delve into the history of Richard and his family through the places that helped shape them into the people they became. It's part biography and part travel guide. I loved it because I was able to travel extensively through both England, Ireland, and then mainland Europe to write it. And if I remember correctly, there was only one location in the book that I didn't actually physically visit. I felt ill on the day of that trip. And luckily, I had a wonderful B&B hostess named Saskia who took care of me on that day. And so I was able to get back to England and then on to Ireland. Well, except for that last part, it sounds like a great trip. Oh, it really was. I did have some interesting experiences One day I was out to visit a castle and I cannot remember which castle it was, but it had been raining nonstop and not like a normal English rain. I mean, it was hard rain for two or three days. And I got there and I was walking around and I slipped and fell in the mud and there was nobody else around. And I thought, well, you're going to have to get yourself out of this one. So I managed to. And by the time that I got into my car, I was dripping mud everywhere. And I just went straight into a local pub, washed my face and sat down. And the lady just looked at me and I thought, well, I told her what happened. Pretty soon everybody was having a laugh and I ate dinner and went on. Hey, a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do. Absolutely. (laughs) Definitely a memorable trip, huh? Oh, it was. I really, really enjoyed it. It's one of the highlights of my life, actually. I loved stepping into the places that Richard had been and really his sister, Margaret, as well. I loved going to Mechelen and some of the places that she had been. And it was just a fascinating experience. You mentioned Richard III and Anne Boleyn. What drew you to Richard? I always thought that he had been maligned. I really did more as a teenager, and I think it was just the fact that I felt bad for him, that he did all these great things, and then he was accused of something that no one is 100% sure that he had done. And I just felt sorry for him. In fact, I wrote a short story in college where it has him sending the boys away so that they would be safe. And I don't really know where that came from, but I guess from some of those earlier books I read. Well, I'm glad you became interested in it because we wouldn't have met otherwise and we wouldn't be friends otherwise. So if nothing else, and of course it's your brilliant career, so you've had so many great things come out of your studies. It's definitely been fascinating and made some really good friends through the whole process. Uh, The history world is a very small world when you get into it and you learn that you're all working for a common cause. It's really good. I, I know you and I talked before about how everyone sees things from their own unique perspective and brings something to the world of history. And you can see that in the vast number of books written about the Tudors. I have so many of them and they're all wonderful. And it you learn something from each one. You really do, don't you? And it is a small world and a lot of friends to be made out there. Some of my best friends I've met on Twitter. Yes, exactly. 
Well, let's get back to the Yorks. Are you working on anything okay. about Richard III right now? No, I'm currently writing a biography about King Henry VIII's sisters and nieces. Once I'm done with that, I've been commissioned to write a book on the Stafford family. Luckily, I'm staying on target with my word counts. Since my students, they know I'm writing a book. They ask me every single day how many words I've written. I'm going to have to thank them in the acknowledgments because they are hard taskmasters. Oh, that is so sweet. What a nice thing to do for you. That's great motivation. Oh, it definitely is. It's really hard to tell a 14-year-old that, no, I didn't write anything last night. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, especially when you're their role model. So I'm glad they're keeping you on your toes for our sake as well. (laughs) Thank you. And I'll definitely look forward to your book. You'll have to come back when you finish that. Oh, I would love to. I'm really learning a lot. I thought I knew so much about Margaret Tudor and Margaret Douglas. And I'm learning that there was quite a bit of stuff I didn't know. And I really have loved learning all the intricate details and perusing the primary documents and going to the National Archives in England and sorting through. And I went to the Lincolnshire Archives as well. And so I'm really enjoying the journey. Well, it definitely sounds like it. I do have some questions about Richard III, if you don't mind. Sure. What are some of the major misconceptions you feel that we have about him? Oh, there are so, so many misconceptions. He was portrayed as a tyrant so often that it's almost become acceptable state of fact. One misconception is that Richard definitely killed Henry VI. They've laid that at his feet, but there's not much evidence to prove it, at least not contemporary. Holland's Hex Chronicles was not contemporary. It was written in the 16th century. And, you know, to be honest, as the late John Ashdown Hill had pointed out quite correctly, I think, that if the former king was to be killed, Edward would likely have had servants or retainers do it and not his brother. And my personal favorite Richard III planned to marry his niece, Elizabeth of York. That's not credible. In fact, it bothered Richard so much that he publicly denied it. And then when his wife Anne did die, he immediately cast about for a Lancastrian heiress of legitimate ancestry. He was looking around Europe for a wife, not his own family. Yeah, that one does seem a bit strange. Yeah, it does. And then, you know, there's someone about Richard III, they call him a tyrant and a bad ruler. Well, first of all, there wasn't much time for him to prove that he was a good ruler. His reign was so short. But, you know, you can look back at his dealings in the North. The city of York's records are full of entries praising Richard. He was called a good and benevolent lord and mentions how many times that he has done things for the welfare of the city. And they mourned his death. Even though Henry VII was now on the throne, they still publicly mourned Richard. And one of my favorite quotes when I was writing the book was was a great description of Richard. It's a letter that the Bishop of St. David's wrote to the prior of Christ Church. In 1483, I believe, I have Dockery and Hammond's collection of primary sources, so I looked it up because I want to make sure I got it right. The letter says that he, Richard, 
contents the people wherever he goes better than ever did any prince. For many a poor man has been relieved and helped by him in his commands. And in many great cities and towns were great sums of money given to him, which he has refused. On my faith, I never liked the qualities of any prince as well as his. God has sent him here for the welfare of us all. If he was such a tyrant and a bad ruler, I seriously doubt that those things would have been said about him. Hmm, Those are very good points. He was well-loved in York. And his earlier government and also how loyal he was to Edward, he went into exile with him. He really spent a lot of time helping his brother. I find him to be a very loyal person. Well, what's an important part of Richard's life that we may not know about? I think Richard III's two times in exile are not as well known. In my book, I was talking about the places he visited. The first time he went, it was he and his brother George, and they were sent to the Burgundian court. And at first, they were treated as exiles. They were not, I mean, they were well cared for, but they weren't treated as brothers to the king. But once Edward IV had taken the throne, they were sent to Bruges, where they were feted as the king's brothers. And I think this early exposure to the Burgundian court, which was well known for its opulence, would have shaped his ideas about what a court should be like. That's a very good point because of that European polish, so to speak, that he would have brought back to England with him. Right. Absolutely. And he was a sponge, it appeared. I mean, he learned so much from his brother and he learned, you know, what not to do from his brother George. So I think that his life, if he had been allowed to rule longer, there would have been several things different. Christy, what do you think Richard III is so popular right now? Well, I think he's been popular, but I do believe that since they discovered his body and the reburial and internment, I think that's had a lot to do with it of the new interest. So just basically everything that's come out, like you said? Yeah, I think so. And he's such a fascinating figure. He's both good and evil, if you believe that he killed his nephews. And I'm not going on record saying I believe he didn't or that I believe he did. I think that no one knows. And I don't think that we'll get to find out unless something comes up that we're able to see. Because even if King Charles III allows the ashes in the urn to be tested, that's just going to tell us if they were the princes. That's not going to tell us who killed them or how they were killed. So I think that's going to be a mystery, and people love mysteries. Absolutely, and it's one of the biggest mysteries of all time, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, people were fascinated throughout the centuries. It's not just been the modern telling of him that has added to his character, how we view his character each decade or each century. They've looked at him through different lenses, and his character has changed. And of course, you know, when the victor is the person writing your history, it's going to be different. It's going to be controversial because no one's going to really know what was Tudor propaganda and what was the truth. Well, you're absolutely right about that. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to 
well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. And as a listener to this message, you are already aware of the All Things Tudor podcast. There is also an All Things Tudor book club and a periodic live audio chat, often featuring special guests. Members of the All Things Tudor Facebook group can look forward to some upcoming surprises. So you're invited to become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and answer the simple membership questions. We look forward to having you join us at All Things Tudor. I'm curious about your field of study, the work you've done. You mentioned your Tudor work. You love the Yorks. Can you tell us more about what your projects are right now, the kind of research you're doing, and what can we expect in the next couple of years? Well, the book on King Henry VIII's sisters and nieces, it's going to be individual biographies of the women. We're going to be looking at Margaret Tudor and go through her life and then immediately into Margaret Douglas. And then from there, I'm going to talk about Mary Tudor and then her daughters, Frances and Eleanor. I think that you start to see some common Tudor characteristics in each of the women. And I think that's really interesting. You know how genetics you know, whether it's nurture or nature, how people talk about that. But you see some of the same personality traits in each of the women that you also see in Henry VIII. It's a picture. It's a portrait of a family. And you can kind of understand more what led each person to do what they've done. And when did you say that was going to be released? Well, I have to have it in early next year. So I'm hoping they haven't given me a date yet because unfortunately I was ill and had to get an extension. So it's probably late next year or the year after. Well, it's a very timely topic. It's something we're all wanting to know more about, not only the lives of women, but especially the Tudor women that you're discussing right now. We're all curious about them. They seem to be perennial favorites. And I know that they've released some of the books that have been written about Henry's sisters before, and that's wonderful. But we always can learn and look and figure out different things. Like, for example, I did find out, I'm not I'm not going to re- tell right now what it is, but I found out some new information. And I really was happy, of course, to do that. But it it's nothing huge, but it, it does show that we can always find new facts about these women because you have to go through and read the primary sources and look for details. And sometimes you have to read between the lines of what the people of the time have said about them, the contemporary evidence versus what was said later and make sure that you are using correct information. You know, that's such a good point. And I'll go back to Richard III on this one. He was always described as being dark. And 
then, of course, when they found his body and the DNA, we find out he had the golden plantagenet hair, et cetera, et cetera. So I looked up the word dark, and at the time of his life, dark meant something completely different than the way we take it now. So words do have meaning. A lot of them meant something completely different then than they mean now. Oh, no, that I totally understand. I have my students read the Mayflower Compact, and it's really funny to watch them try to decipher the words, not because they're not intelligent. They're very intelligent. It's just because it's written in a different type of language than what they're used to. And so we have to think about that. Vocabulary words may not mean the same thing back then that they do today. And luckily, we have resources now to look things up, like you were saying, and you know, go back and review material and see what the word meant and how it was perceived at that time. Words are ever-changing, and I can't wait to find out what you discovered. That should be that's something very intriguing and makes me want to know more right now. <laughs> well, it's basically about a place that Margaret Tudor went that has been identified as somewhere else. And so it's nothing huge or groundbreaking, but it's just always so neat to find tidbits of information that you would not have expected to have ever been overlooked after all this time. But I'm really interested in the details. And of course, obviously, I like places since that's what my first two books had in common. So I do like to know where a person was when they did what they did. Well, I think it's exciting that you've uncovered something new because we think we've known the same thing about these people and things have been printed and reprinted. And now that more information is coming to light, things like you're talking about just makes it all more real for those of us who love it. It does. And, you know, I read books. I love nonfiction history and there's so many new books coming out all the time and I love to read them. It seems like the different take that someone has can make something pop for you that you've read seven times, but the way they express it, you're like, oh yeah, that's true. So I think that's really why we keep issuing history, nonfiction history, because People are hungry for it. People in the history world want to know what was happening. And the readers are phenomenal. I really enjoy talking with readers of my book because they will tell me things and I'll be, yeah, and I wrote it. I knew it was there. But it's just hearing it from someone else, it just makes it more intriguing, more interesting for me, even though I was the one who initially put the words on the paper. That's so well put because sometimes that little spark from historical fiction will make a historian think, I've never looked at it from that way. And they'll start digging and find actual documentation, maybe not what was brought out in the fictional work or works, but something new that we haven't known about before. So I'm like you, I see room for everything. And I read historical fiction. I've taken history books on vacation. I read all of it. So I completely understand what you're saying. 
Oh, I do too. My husband, his first words, if we're going to watch a movie that has anything to do about history is, do you know much about this time period? He will not watch a movie with me. <laughs> I know a lot about it because <laughs> I'm constantly saying that's not what happened. That's not true. And I ruin it for him. So I tried to get better. You know, like some of the new movies out right now that I don't know as much about, he'll probably watch with me, like The Serpent Queen or some of the others. But that's a series, I guess, is a better word for that. But it's funny. His eyes will just glaze over. <laughs> I've seen that look in my own husband. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least he has supported me, though. <laughs> Oh, yes, I understand that completely. So you've done a lot of really good work. And I do have to ask you the big question that I've been waiting to ask you for a week now. What if Richard had won the Battle of Bosworth? Well, I, I've been thinking of some of the different, there's so many, but some of the more important ones, you know, first of all, well, he would have remarried and probably had more children, and we wouldn't have had a Tudor dynasty. And Elizabeth of York would likely have made a marriage in Portugal, as Richard intended. So no Margaret Tudor marrying the King of Scotland, no Mary Tudor marrying the King of France, and no Henry VIII and his six wives. And Catherine of Aragon, she would have married elsewhere. Yeah, the whole world would have been different, Catherine wouldn't it? Oh, it would have. I mean, the marriages would have meant power shifts in Europe because Catherine of Aragon would have married elsewhere. There wouldn't have been the Reformation, at least not the way England experienced it. What I found more interesting were the effects on Scotland. When I started thinking about it, there probably wouldn't have been a flood field where such a large part of their nobility perished. And perhaps James V would have lived to have other children. So no Mary, Queen of Scots. So many different things. You know, you wouldn't have had the unification of Scotland and England through King James. Because there would not have been a Margaret Douglas who had a child, Darnley, who married Mary, Queen of Scots, and who gave birth to James the Sixth. So it's just amazing what changes it would have had, what different Things would have happened, and you know, perhaps we would even know the fate of the princes in the tower <laughs> if he had lived. You know, it may have come out what had happened. It's fascinating to do that. I love playing what if. Well, you just have to think about it. It's one of those things we all wonder, right? And he was just such an enigma. Writing a book about him is like peeling an onion every new layer. You find something else about him. And I really think that he would have been one of the best kings that England had ever had. And that's not taking away from Henry VII. I really think he did a good job as well. I just think that Richard III would have been a phenomenal king if he had been given longer to rule. Well, that's fair enough. I completely get that. And I think those are very valid points. I love the Tudors and I love the Yorks, which obviously I have interest in history other than those two dynasties, but they're the ones I tend to read historical fiction in. They're the ones I tend to read any new nonfiction that comes out. They're definitely a great 
source of enjoyment and to just learn different facets. And I got so irritated at a TV show that came out, and I won't name it, but I wanted to say there is so much drama in that family as it is. We don't need to change anything. (laughs) Just tell the story the way it was. It's a soap opera. It really truly is. I agree with you completely on that one. And they almost did have something going on every day. So you don't really have to add a whole lot to what they did. No. In Henry's early reign, you had the different rebellions. You know, you had all sorts of things. And it's really interesting that you have, you know, he marries Elizabeth of York and they have this great marriage Despite, well, from all evidence that we see, they had a great marriage. They really, you know, at the death of Arthur, you can see the love. He breaks down and then he goes to comfort his wife. And then she ends up trying to comfort him. And the love is palpable. You can see it. And that makes it harder to understand how Henry VIII could have had such a marital history as he did, because obviously his parents loved each other. You would think he had had a good role model, but, you know, you never know what happens in someone's mind. Yeah, something definitely went wrong there, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it definitely did. You know, and it was funny is that there is a difference among people about each of the wives, I find them all fascinating because they all had different reactions to the same man. And I really have grown interested in each one as, you know, gone through writing and looking at things. And, you know, you can like Anne Boleyn and still like Catherine of Aragon. You can like Anne Boleyn and still like learning of James Seymour. And when I say like, I don't mean as a, a fan or or something like that. I just mean as interested in them. You don't have to cast them in the role of a villain. You can still enjoy reading about them and learning about them without casting them as against each other because they were all trying to survive and do the best they could with the circumstances that they had been given. You're so right. And they were all individual women and they all had great qualities of their own. And history has just lumped them together as the wives of Henry VIII. And they're so intriguing individually. It's another point I agree with you on. They they all bring something different to the table. So a lot to be studied there, a lot more to read, I'm sure. Absolutely. And just scratching the surface with the tutors with this book, it would be great to be able to do a full biography of each of the women. I know there's a good biography coming out on Margaret Tudor. I'm trying to remember who is writing it. I want to say Linda Porter, but I'm not 100% sure. I may be wrong on that, so don't quote me. But I'm looking forward to reading that after I finish with this book. And then the Stafford family will get me to be able to delve into each era of history I like right there. Because that family, you can go from the Hundred Years War all the way up to Henry VIII and even beyond. But the strength of the family was basically ended 
during the reign of Henry VIII. But it's just really a fascinating topic. If you listen to me, I will say everything is fascinating in history. That's just my favorite word for it. But it really is. And that's what I try to teach my students, too, is that these people lived. They existed. They're just like you and me. They lived in different times. They had different customs, but they still have the same wants and needs and desires that we do. You're absolutely right. And it all is fascinating. And I'm glad to hear you say that. No taking sides on wives, no taking sides on this or that. They all bring in intriguing little things for us to find out. And there's something for all of us with each of them. So I do want to ask you, we've talked about your books. We've talked about you. We've talked about your career. How can our listeners find you on social media? Okay. Well, I'm on Twitter at Christy Davis D. It wouldn't let me put the N on my last name. And that's K-R-I-S-T-I-E-D-A-V-I-S-D-E-A. And then I'm on Facebook at Christy Dean Arthur, and I have a website, christydean.com. Okay, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And um, thanks for joining me today. I have really enjoyed talking to you, and I've looked forward to this all week long. I have too, so thank you for inviting me. Of course, you have to come back. That goes without saying. We've got to hear about your book when it's released, so you'll have to be in touch. And thanks again. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. <laughs>